0: Durban, South Africa, in the aftermath of the rain bomb. The South African Human Rights Commission in KwaZulu Natal is concerned that not
1: enough is being done to help flood victims. They're still living in shelters where safety is a concern.
0: The house Zweli Kize helped build is a soggy mess. The spiritual capital of assassination nation. It's been a couple of months since we spoke to Cebu Zikore of Abahlali Basem Jondolo at a studio in Durban. It was May, and he had recently lost two of his colleagues, Ayanda Ngila and Noctula Mabaso, both gunned down in a small commune known as Ekanana in Kato Manor. Three and a half months later, on August 5th, the grassroots shack dwellers' movement experienced yet another devastating loss. 28-year-old activist and Abahlali leader Kuchle Mguni and his girlfriend were sleeping in their dwelling in the commune when gunmen broke in and opened fire on them. Mguni had witnessed Ngila's shooting and spoke openly about his fear of reprisals in the weeks before he faced the guns himself. Mguni died on the scene. His girlfriend survived. Here's Mguni speaking just weeks before his assassination.
2: We used to talk a lot about death, because we knew very well that someday, Lucky like won't be on our side, they will kill us. It's socialism or death.
0: The young man's death marks the 24th assassination of Abaklali leaders since its founding in 2005. No one feels this loss more keenly than its leader, Smu Zekode.
2: Losing someone of that caliber hurts. We're torn apart. We knew that his contribution was not just for his own liberation, but for the liberation of many people in South Africa and abroad. So losing someone like that... I am reminded of the quotes from the famous intellectual Franz Fanon, who once said, Each generation must discover its mission, fulfill it or betray it. It's a moment of do or die.
0: What was our first highwayman William Kieses generational mission? Well, it was, of course, the so-called unity of the ANC. That unity has faded into political oblivion. The use of the word unity, however, has not it appeared early in the ANC's history, and it's still being used, unironically, all these years later.
2: President Cyril Ramaphosa has called for unity within the ANC. He says that divisions and internal squabbles... In
0: episode one, we laid out a seven-point breakdown of how South Africa's democratic project has devolved over the course of the ANC's history. One of the most severe tests of the party's unity came early in the third phase of that progression— the corruption that creeps into increasingly factionalized politics, which we started to see even as the ANC government was just settling in behind their mahogany desks at the union buildings. As the new nation was taking shape during negotiations with the outgoing apartheid bosses, the major ideological figure emerging into the spotlight was Nelson Mandela's de facto prime minister, Thabo Mbeki. Mbeki is South African democracy's spectre. It's Machiavelli, it's impresario, it's Wizard of Oz. The compromises Mbeki would end up making cleaved his party firmly in two, rendering the term unity meaningless and charting the perilous course the country finds itself on today.
1: Daily Maverick presents The Highwayman, a limited podcast series written and directed by Richard Poplack and Diana Neal and produced with support from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. The content may not necessarily reflect the Foundation's views or opinions. This is Episode 3. A rising tide lifts all superyachts.
3: We put ourselves in the shoes of the other side. If we were the national party, we'd be very reluctant to lose power and therefore would fight against change.
4: This is the Wizard of Oz himself, speaking about self-interested reconciliation back when South Africa was still pretending to be a rainbow nation.
3: These black people that are always defined in a particular way, terrorists, communists, all these terrible things, you'll be fearful of them taking over. So we said, well, to address that fear, let's offer them the sunset clauses to say, you will not lose power completely.
4: Well, they didn't lose power completely. The National Party bureaucrats were proud of the state-owned Lego land they'd built for themselves. It provided electricity, rail services, and airline, and the other accoutrement of modernity for the country's four and a half million or so whites
3: talking of transport one of the things that amazes me about south africa is the excellence of the roads i don't know how they do it with such a small population
4: a second perhaps more significant upside was that these companies served as empowerment or enrichment vehicles for the Afrikaner elite mbeki would help broker an alliance with this cohort along with the anglo nobility in the private sector The heads of big banks, mines and retail corporations had every incentive to keep the economic status quo intact. These corporations were instrumental in financing the apparatus of apartheid. The government couldn't exist unless it received financing from outside sources. Mbeki was an immensely complex figure who tried to build a functioning nation-state as the ANC's old benefactors, the communist bloc, faded into history. Any talk of nationalization of assets was furiously discouraged, and not just by Western countries and lending institutions, but also by rising Eastern powers like China. Capitalism was the only option on the drop-down menu. According to the historian Quinn Slobodian, by the 1990s, politics had moved to the passive tense. The only actor was the global economy.
2: The truth of the 1990s was the production of ever more forms of law, ever more institutions to enclose human knowledge, to enclose the natural world, and to encode it in assets and trade it in new ways.
4: In Mozambique, when the colonial regime fell in 1975, the Portuguese fled with whatever they could carry. By contrast, in the Rainbow Nation, the old guards slowly mixed gin and tonics and watched the Gemsbok rut on their game farms.
3: The ruling elites, if you like, had decided that they needed to put something else in place which was not too destructive of their interests. They had to find a interlocutor who could agree to some sort of pact or deal. And of course the key actor there is not Nelson Mandela, the key actor is Thabo Mbeki.
4: Neil Coleman, the co-director of a progressive think tank called the Institute for Economic Justice, was a trade unionist from the 1980s until 2017. He participated in the constitutional negotiations and was present for much of this high-stakes, four-dimensional chess match.
3: There we go to this notion of a Faustian pact. And the original sin is that pact You know, what we saw emerge out of CODESA, out of constitutional negotiations, and out of the unspoken second set of negotiations, which were around the economic settlement.
0: Coleman is referring to the Convention for Democratic South Africa, or CODESA, a series of two multi-party negotiations that, although they failed, laid the groundwork for a country that would be argued into reality. The talks opened the door to a government of national unity, a constitution-making process, and ultimately, the formation of a liberal democracy in the golden glow of communism's vanquishing. Following Mandela's inauguration in '94, there's no question that advances were made in electrification, in sanitation, in access to education, in housing development, in revenue collection, and redistributive policies that got social grants to people who had no other prospect of income. But by 1996, Mbeki had produced a far more conservative, neoliberal framework for South Africa's future. Neoliberalism has been misconstrued as freeing up markets and reducing the size of the state. At best, this is only a partial definition. The neoliberal order was much more accurately described as a means of submitting to global institutions that protected capitalism from democracy. In this, Mbeki was a diehard neoliberal. He and his advisers believed in the transformative power of the new black elite and hoped that by enriching them, to loosely paraphrase U.S. President John F. Kennedy, There's an old saying that a rising tide lifts all the boats. A rising tide would lift all super yachts.
3: You hear people saying, we want to live as the whites do. And when you ask, what does that mean? They say we want to have a house, which must be electrified, must have running water. I must be able to buy a TV set and run it off the mains. And that's their vision. You've got to impact on the standard of living of people in that way.
4: Amazingly, following the brutality of apartheid, instead of an across-the-board commitment to economic fairness and redress, there was economic consolidation among white and black elites. This wasn't exactly long-term thinking. And it didn't just maintain the conditions of apartheid's underclass, it expanded the size of that underclass, ...while stunting its upward mobility. After all, not everyone could get a low-cost bank loan... ...a seat on a board or a chunk of a mining company. Those left out would need to find other routes to wealth and comfort. You be the judge of how that's worked out.
1: South Africa has been ranked the most unequal country in the world... ...that is out of 164 countries in the World Bank's global poverty database.
4: Over in KZN, the only province not under the stewardship of the ANC at that point in 1994... Zweli Mkiza was made MEC of Health. It was a post he would hold for a decade. His brief was to perform so well that he would win the province for the ANC in 1999 and cement the province's role in national politics as a kingmaker. The idea was to grow the ANC into a genuine supernova and watch the whole country submit to its gravitational pull, which is exactly what ended up happening. But just as this mega-elite was starting to shore up power, very real problems emerged. One of them was the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Here's longtime activist Zaki Ahmad speaking to media at the height of the crisis that Mbeki, with his AIDS denialist policies, refused to believe was happening. We will lead evidence to show that South Africa faces an explosive epidemic. More than 30% of women who attend antenatal clinics across our country have HIV. And that is a dramatic epidemic. It is estimated that between 12 and 15% of our total population already have HIV.
0: Mkize, an actual medical doctor, sided with Mbeki in the late 90s in denying pregnant women drug treatment that would help prevent mother-to-infant infections. He was reportedly torn by this decision. But despite the obvious cost of doing nothing, he would not break ranks. Several years later, he did finally allow antiretroviral treatment trials to take place in the province, despite Mbeki's AIDS-denialist policies. Action, or rather inaction, based on rank political expediency. This would become the ANC way. We were watching in real time the formation of a powerful political elite, a superclass of cadres. The millions of AIDS casualties were merely collateral damage.
2: Perhaps no nation has paid as steep a toll from AIDS as South Africa has.
0: While the epidemic worsened, another apartheid-era empowerment scheme was being revived. The procurement of massive amounts of military hardware, with plenty of sugar to go around for everybody. The following clip comes courtesy of Andrew Feinstein, a former ANC MP turned corruption buster.
5: Thabo Mbeki made the decision to spend what will ultimately amount to around $10 billion on highly sophisticated weaponry. $300 million in bribes were paid to senior politicians and sadly to the African National Congress, the ANC, my own party.
0: Feinstein resigned in 2001 when it became clear that most in the ANC didn't consider the deal as a scandal, but rather a solidly beneficial business transaction
5: it really was for me the point at which the ANC lost its moral compass, the point at which we were prepared to say we will spend what were quite scarce public resources on this weaponry that we didn't need, rather than provide life-saving medication to our own citizens.
2: The
4: notorious arms deal was signed in December 1999 between South Africa and a number of dodgy European so-called defense companies. It implicated nearly every senior leader in the ANC, but no one more so than Mbeki's deputy president, the former intelligence operative and alleged leftist populist Jacob Zuma.
1: Zuma and his co-accused, the French arms manufacturer, tales are facing various charges, including corruption, money laundering and racketeering. They relate to 780 questionable payments in connection with the controversial arms deal in the 1990s.
4: Meanwhile, the type of political killings that had defined the end of apartheid in KZN hadn't disappeared. they just started to morph into something else, a contestation for power and for money at a local level.
0: Political violence
2: continues unabated in KwaZulu-Natal.
4: Few people know this better than the journalist Chris Makaye.
5: There are allegations that people get assassinated by other means other than a can. And then there are people who are alleged to be behind those killings. For example, people would say former President Jacob Zuma is behind some of the killings. Certain IFP leaders... Some of even point fingers at Butelezi himself. Dr. Zwelium Kize's name has been mentioned. But, like all other allegations, it has never been proven.
0: As one of the most powerful people in the provincial structures, the stench of assassinations would end up clinging to Zwelium Kize, even if the accusations didn't stick. In 2008, Mkhizeh sued the media conglomerate News24 for defamation after one of its titles, City Press, implicated him in the assassination in 1999 of KZN opposition politician Sfison Kabinde. Ironically, the story laid out how a credible political hit had been taken out on Mkise by an aggrieved hitman who said that the good doctor had never paid him the thousands he owed him for the political hit on Kabinde. It was a loony story. But there was no proof for the allegation, and Mkizeh won the defamation case. But on the streets, as buzekore from from Abahlali Jondola reminds us, this was having a material effect on the lives of the people left out of the ANC's pact.
2: It is unfortunate that we are not really taking this violence seriously as a nation. It may be taken seriously in different confined corners, but again, we don't have a leader that can coordinate That can call Indaba, a conference, a serious conversation into this. The level of violence. You never hear even a premier, even today, raising any concern about the killing of people. Not just Abakhali. Not only activists, but traditional leaders. Isinduna chiefs are being killed with impunity. Not to mention politicians,
0: white councillors and so on. How can that be acceptable in any society? In 2012, Mkize dismissed the sort of hand-wringing. As far as he was concerned, the situation was totally under control. The
2: issue of political killing is a new phenomenon. And the way I've described it is actually something that's coming up of late. We have said the police must act and they've acted very quickly. You have seen how even the victim was buried. Somebody had already been sentenced. It's extreme efficiency. ...of police which is actually linked to the cooperation of the community.
4: Given the well-documented track record of the South African Police Service, this is more than a little hard to believe. But as Mbeki's elite project intensified, as the supernova grew bigger and bigger, swallowing the sky, Mkize was the ultimate backroom dealmaker, keeping his options open, flitting from faction to faction. As Zuma became deeply embroiled in his battle with Thabo Mbeki, Mkiza was aiming to take control of KZN. In 2004, he was appointed the province's MEC for Finance and Economic Development. At the same time, he was also the chairperson of the ANC's National Education and Health Subcommittee. In 2005, it was time for him to engage in a cold war for provincial power. With Zuma preoccupied fighting corruption charges stemming from the arms deal, Mkise was left to face off against Spu Ndebele, the province's premier. The two men represented the two sides of the growing rift within the ANC. But even in the face of his obvious friendship with Zuma, Mkise, the eternal cipher, remained impossible to pin down. Here's Mkise's former spokesperson,
2: Cyril Madlala. In fact, that always goes down as one of the most very bitter leadership struggles in KZN that was between Zweli and, and Spu Ndebele. Zbu won the first term and Zweli was his deputy. Then Zweli became chair after that. But it really divided the ANC in the province in, in a very big way. Some people say the province still hasn't quite recovered from that.
4: That would be an understatement. As Zuma lurched towards the presidency and victory over Mbeki, Mkise won the day back in the home province. The
3: number of votes received by Comrade Jacob Zuma.
5: As soon as they took over, they consolidated power, especially Israeli. I don't think there was anybody who would have contested him and won. They were fearful of contesting.
4: With Zuma in power nationally and Mkiza in charge of basically everything at a provincial level, the Zuma faction of the ANC was in full control of the province. This was the party's moment to bring it into the 21st century, to entrench rule of law and wipe out factionalism. How did they do?
5: As a government, as a premier, he didn't do anything that one can write home about. But we know that the MECs under him, they were so fearful of him. He knew how to use his powers.
4: There were other hints in Mkiza's long reign of what was to come. Back when he was MEC for Finance and Economic Development in 2006, a scandal broke over an 11.8 million rand loan. It was made to his wife, May, from the Itala Development Finance Corporation to buy a family farm near Pietermaritzburg. As MEC, Mkiza would have been the custodian of Itala, which was the provincial government-owned empowerment vehicle. He would have overseen its expenditure, yet he insisted his wife had won the farm loan in her own right as a, quote, independent businesswoman.
5: It went on and on. Then you started sharing even more allegation that now his wife, she's involved in government business, she's involved in building schools here and there, and she's fronting with some people here. So you started sharing things about them that Zueli is using his wife as a front They say he instructed some of the MECs to direct some business towards people who are close to his wife. So you always heard that, but it hasn't been proven by anybody.
4: As all of this deepened, the violence started to trend upwards and upwards some more. No one experienced that more deeply than Spu and his constituents. We, We seem to have this disconnect as a country between who we think we are and who we actually are. Hundreds of people have been killed in political killings in our country. And I would like you to speak on that and, and, and try explain to me why we
2: don't understand that we are actually at war with ourselves. Because it's been normalized. We have accepted violence. We've been raised with violence. We've been ruled and governed with violence. How can we not be a violent nation? We are not a nation that can engage peacefully. We are a nation that when we lose a war, we send the military. We don't think we should be engaging. That's what happens when leadership fails.
0: This is the house that Mkize helped build. He then went national with that construction project. In 2012, he was made Treasurer General of the ANC by President Zuma and put in charge of the party's money pot.
3: That is not a small position, a serious position in the ANC.
0: In 2021, after rising to the head of the National Health Ministry, Mkise was fired for that sordid 150 million Rand scam during the COVID pandemic. The fake marketing company he and his cronies used to plunder the health budget, Digital Vibes, would prove his undoing. Or would it? In his story, we found a model for a type of politician that often emerges in an increasingly illiberal democracy the faux technocrat, perfectly educated, outwardly able, robotic, corrupt. By dint of his history as a liberation fighter in exile, he became a member of the ANC elite, an in-group fastidiously focused on its own interests. During the fight for liberation, Mkhizeh administered to his comrades, risking his own life to protect and heal others. During democracy, he abandoned many people during the AIDS crisis. He abandoned many more during covid In between, it's our view that he helped normalise a culture of assassinations, a hangover of the violence from apartheid that he had once helped quell. The question is, where is the government of the day? Even the poor are saying we don't
2: see government. The rich don't see government, the poor, the middle class don't see government. They are busy with the upcoming elective conference of the ANC.
0: Which brings us back to the rain bomb and the flood devastation that has left the province in peril. The Mkizevers has left no fat on the bone, no room for emergencies. As the climate turns increasingly nasty, so does the mood of those living tenuously.
2: Of course, the poor would be the most impacted by the, the climate because the infrastructure in their communities is not up to scratch. They have not been able to have access to well located land. shack dwellers, most of those who are living along floods plain, It's not that people are stupid, it's because they have no choice. We are sitting on the ticking time bomb. And we've always warned that the anger of the poor can go in many directions.
0: After bidding farewell to Zekode, our road trip pulls us back up the N3 highway, towards the Free State, to where a political murder changed the course of the ANC forever. And as a result, the course of South Africa's democracy.
1: The Highwayman is written, produced, and directed by Richard Poplack and Diana Neal, with editing and sound design by Bernard Kutzer, Diana Neal, and Tevia Turok Shapiro. The original soundtrack is written by Bernard Kutzer. Our project manager is Catherine Kutzer, and our marketing lead is Sarah Kupman. Fact-checking and editorial oversight by Sasha Wales-Smith, with transcriptions provided by Gloria Cooper. Additional voiceover by Ayanda Charlie. Our editor-in-chief is Branko Brkić, and our executive producer is Silly Gerolambus. Production of The Highwaymen was made possible with support from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. The content may not necessarily reflect the Foundation's views or opinions. For additional archive and music credits, please visit Daily Maverick. New episodes of The Highwaymen drop weekly on IONO, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen to them on the Daily Maverick website. If you found this installment interesting, illuminating, or perhaps even a little life-changing, please consider leaving a review or sharing on social media.